to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. Hi, I'm Simon Tebow, and my new cookbook is called Pantry and Palate, Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food. adore cookbooks like this. It's more than just a cookbook. It's a family narrative that spans over 100 years. A reacquaintance with old food traditions with recipes and anecdotes seasoned with history. Acadie doesn't exist geographically anymore. So what exactly defines the Acadians? Acadie is defined by the people and it's defined by family more than anything else. Um, One of the first things that happens when you're in Acadian communities uh, is people will ask you, like, well, who's, what, who are your parents? Because that way you can start to establish a possible family connection. Like, mine would be, I am Simon, son of Hector, son of uh, Ulysses, son of William, son of Isidore. So, like, within those five generations, you and I might be able to find some kind of familial connection. Um, and that's how Acadians identify themselves. We're always in this constant state of seeking each other out. That's how we exist. The connection between the Cajuns and the Acadians intrigued me. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, like, historically, what you essentially have is that in 1755, the Acadians, who were colonists to what is now um, Atlantic Canada, um, specifically New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, and actually into parts of what is now Maine, actually. Um, we were there, and we were colonists to the area, and then the English were like, uh, sign fealty to the crown, or we're kicking you out because we're afraid of you being still French. And we're like, uh, no, we're not French. We don't care. <laughs> but So they kicked us out, and we were sent all over the place. Some of us went back to France, and some people uh, who went back to France later on ended up in Louisiana and... Um, the best example of like describing the connection between Acadians and Cajuns uh, was a gentleman named Barry Onsolet. Uh, Barry is a uh, very much like a very militant Cajun. Uh, he's a poet and musician and professor at Lafayette. And uh, he once said it's like talking to two siblings who were separated at the age of eight and meet again when they're 80. So you have an incomplete, you have a root but you have a completely different life experience. And then you meet again, but you still feel this strong kinship. I have a lot of friends from Nova Scotia and from uh, New Brunswick who have gone to Louisiana. And as soon as you say you're Acadian, it's like, come on to my house, my cousin. We're going to go eat together. Like there's this really wonderful connection. And this again, that desire to reconnect that kind of exists. So I'm with you. I don't want a cookbook that teaches you how to dump and stir. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I want a culture and cuisine mixed into my cookbooks. So when you were doing the research, you said that there was only one Acadian cookbook published in 1974 that was in French. Is that right? Yep, pretty much. And that book wasn't even translated into English until like 2001. Um and it's funny, I know uh, a friend of mine who works for the publisher who published that book, and she said, your book has actually helped our book sell again, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is great. I mean, the more the merrier, really. But yeah, there was very little information, and so it was very much a question of going through primary sources. But luckily, um, 
the primary source from my book were a series of notebooks, which were my grandmother's and my mother's and my great aunts and various other family members. Because when I first started this book, because there was no other real, uh, other than the one cookbook around this, it was very difficult to decide what to put in. And, uh, my background is in journalism. So it's very much a question of like, how far back do you go? How far do you start digging? And I started looking to everything from like agricultural reports to folklore to everywhere. And I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? And, um, this woman who's kind of a mentor of mine, Naomi Duguid, um, she's a James Beard award-winning author. She's written, she and her ex-husband wrote a series of cookbooks, two of which would, uh, won book of the year award. And she lives in Toronto here in Canada. And she and I were talking and she says, just write the recipes. Don't worry about all the information you think you're missing. The recipes will tell you where to focus. And she was right. And I decided to focus on these family recipes. But the family recipe, again, like the whole thing of being a Acadian, your family will tell you who you are and where to go and where to seek out things like further back. And that was the key to it all. And I'm really grateful for that. And the recipes taught me where to dig. So a simple recipe of a cornmeal molasses bread can lead me back to how the Acadians came in contact with the loyalists who were uh, Americans who had left the United States after the uh, war of independence and how those traditions became part of it. And there's also a, within the loyalists, there were also black loyalists. So African uh, Nova Scotian communities were in conjunction with all of these things or like, um, the tradition of rasping potatoes and using that pulp in a very specific way. That's German influence. That's a German thing. The Acadians didn't do that realistically beforehand. So each recipe told me where to go. And so I, it was a heck of a, a heck of a research project. But I, I, the best part about it all for me was that doing all this research and cooking was about experiencing what it means to be Acadian in a context that I had never experienced before. And not in such a profound way. And so I'm really grateful for that. Going through the series of notebooks that your mother gave you, did you discover something you never knew about your mom or your grandma? I really did. Because the thing was that um, my grandmother, who's who wrote the majority of these notebooks, um, she passed away when, she, when I was like four or five. So I never really knew her. I only knew her through story, through like um, stories that my mother would t tell about her or that my uncle would say about her. So I had no real connection to this woman, not in the same way that I had to other grandparents or whatnot or other family members. But in digging through this, I came to understand who she was and what her life was like on a daily basis. And that was not only a, like a wonderful educational process, but a wonderful process that I came to understand who this woman was for my own mother. And that was a connection that I never would have had beforehand. And so I'm, again, deeply grateful for that. But more than anything, it was also interesting to see the life that she had. Um, you have a woman who graduated high school when she was 16, but because she couldn't go to teacher's college yet because she had to be 18, her brother, who was a priest, sent her to a finishing school in Quebec for the Ursuline College, which actually was the first college established for women in uh, North America. And so she went there for two years. And so she learned what was then known as les arts ménagers or home economics, but not home economics for like what would have been for you or myself, um, meaning like how to do very simple things. It's like, no. 
economics in all of this. What is the nutritive value of certain forms of food? What is the price of these things? How can I stretch that? How can I cook these things? All of these things, like how to truly create a home. And uh, I've, as I was digging through all of this and realizing there were very simple and subtle things that my mother did that I was like, oh, that's, that's the root of that, which was kind of wonderful to see. When was your grandmother born? She was born in 1908 or 09, if I remember correctly. The books were also like they were written by my grandmother, and the like, and also other uh, ancestors like a great aunt and things like that. So you have everything from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s and 60s in these, and all of this. So you see everything from the development of like uh, industrialization and industrialized foods. So you will see. Um, recipes for like some things will ask for a baking soda, but it will actually ask, actually ask for, um, what they would call pearl ash, which technically is actually baking soda. Uh, and so then later recipes will ask for baking powder. So you see the development of things in the 20th century and even, and whatnot, which, I th- which was super interesting to me. And the gorgeous cursive that we don't oh, see God, anymore. Yes. Oh God. Yes. You could, it, it's fun. Like I've seen enough of it now that I'm like, you were taught by nuns. You were taught by nuns. <laughs> you can just tell by the writing. With so many recipes handed down from generation to generation, the measurements are vague. What was the recipe testing like for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not a professional cook. I never went to culinary school. I'm, I'm a journalist. Um, so my background and all of this, and I'm very much a self-taught uh, cook. But because of my background in journalism, my interest is always like as thorough as possible. And I'm the kind of guy who will go and try anything once, um, especially in terms of cookery and testing out and techniques and whatnot. But I realize that it's one thing for me to be able to cook on my own. It's another thing for me to transmit that information to another person and for them to be able to execute it. That was the job. Um, and like you said, all of these recipes, the vast majority of them had next to no directions and relatively vague, um, measurements. So I would fiddle around, figure it out. Uh, I was really lucky because I, uh, have a friend who works at America's test kitchen. Um, he works for cook's country. His name is Tucker Shaw, super sweet guy. And I emailed him and I said, Tucker, what am I going to do about how to transmit this information? And he gave me a bunch of really great tips, and one of which was read the recipe out loud or get someone actually, no, get someone to read you the recipe out loud, close your eyes, and mime with your hands what you think you should be doing. Really? Yeah. (laughs) But it's true. And it's like, because you know, like, if you've cooked enough or you've baked enough, you know, you should know intrinsically when things should happen. And if someone's telling you what to do and all of a sudden your brain goes, no, I shouldn't be doing that yet. It makes sense. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It was a really smart tip. So thank you, Tucker wow. Shaw. Why can't you find Acadian food in restaurants? For various reasons. The number one thing is most people just kind of cook it at home. It's most of the major dishes tend to be um, like large family gathering kind of dishes. Um that's one thing. Um, but if you are in Acadian communities, you will occasionally find it on a few, like, like a few things, like, uh, occasionally in diners and things like that. But, uh, it's also the thing is because Acadians lived a form of life that was often subsistence cookery, um, survival, peasant food, uh, food that would stick to your ribs and keep you going through a long day of work. 
there is no re- there is next to no refinement as we view refinement today. And so the idea of something being necessarily aesthetically pleasing uh, on a plate as we view it today in the 21st century doesn't really stick around. Like I've often said that Acadian food is like homey and homely, but very pleasing to the stomach. It's more pleasing to the stomach than to the eye. Like a perfect example is this dish called rapure or rapi pie, which is a dish of you take potatoes you rasp the potatoes, and then you extrude all of the, the starch out of them by squeezing them. Uh, and then you reconstitute that with stock. And that creates this, like, kind of porridge. interesting text. Yeah, it's like a e? potato porridge or like a potato congee or juk. And it's just kind of like, okay. Uh, and then you add uh, some form of meat to it, whether it be poultry or wild game or even, like, a clams like wild bark like large bar clams which is kind of a favorite of mine and then you bake that in an oven at god like 400 and 450 degrees i can't remember off the top of my head right now but like for an extended period of time and it's basically kind of insanely like thick mildly gelatinous and just kind of like <laughs> sits on your plate but it sits in your belly and you're just like, I am so full of food right now and so happy. And it's like, think about it. It's, it will keep you going for a long time. But it's not the sexiest thing in the world. Like I recently was lucky enough to have the chance to hang out with uh, some people from the Perennial Plate who were this lovely couple from Minnesota who have won multiple beard awards for their videos. And I took them around and uh, there's a shot in the short that we did where you see someone plating uh, rapi pie on a plate and you just hear this like sound as it hits the plate and it kind of <laughs> jiggles and I'm like yep that's it but I mean I can know a lot of people would just be going uh what am I eating what and it's kind of fun like that but I mean I don't know I I, I love it and I grew up on it it's kind of like everybody I think if you have any form of like uh no matter what your ethnicity there's oftentimes some kind of dish somewhere that it's like this is just for us it's not for you <laughs> and it's always fun when someone who is not from your community comes in and really adores it it's like okay you could stick around on monday night i made your recipe for cajun free coat and uh, that's not a looker either no but it's not but it's so darn good <laughs> good good I had my uh, brand new class parent committee over for dinner, and they loved it. And the spicy Cajun sausage really flavored the chicken, which was interesting. Yeah, totally. So Frico is a basically a chicken and dumpling stew. You'll find it throughout most Acadian communities, uh, if not all of them. But um, in the 1990s, a bunch of people from Louisiana started coming to southwestern Nova Scotia, which is where I grew up in a little village called Church Point or Pointe de l'Église. And in this village, there is actually a university. It's called Université Saint-Anne or University Saint-Anne. And at Saint-Anne, there is an immersion program. So French immersion. So people will come in and learn how to speak French. And a lot of people in the 1990s started coming there to learn French because they wanted to, to kind of like reaffirm their kind of cultural heritage through a linguistic way. And a lot of people from Louisiana came up and they were like, all right, well, let's try some of your dishes. And they all went, oh, y'all need spice in this. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the pepper? Where's the seasoning? Where's the spice? And we're like, uh, nope, not there. And so one gentleman, a really wonderful guy named Lucius Fontenot, um, 
who everybody told me was like, you need to talk to Lucius like for years. And so Lucius and I finally started talking and he said he had gone down and he'd had it. And he's like, this would be really good with sausage or just like spice it up. And so when he went back to Louisiana, he started making Frico, but he made it with like a, a little bit of pepper or a little bit of like smoked, like tasso ham or like Cajun sausage. But in most places, most people outside of the South can't get tasso. So I was like, all right, any kind of like decently nice Cajun spiced sausage will do well in a pinch. And I, it's funny. It's one of the recipes that has gotten a lot of attention from a lot of people, which is kind of wonderful. I encourage everyone to make it. It's on page 125. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you scoured through old cookbooks and recipes and said that the feedback you received from other Acadian families has been eye-opening. How so? One of the things is, as an Acadian, um, because there's been so little attention to our food, and all of a sudden my book comes out and people are like, oh, we can talk about this? This is now a point of pride for people because amongst Cajuns, the way that you express yourself is by your food, but Acadians express themselves by what comes out of their mouths, the way that they speak, but for Cajuns, it's what goes in your mouth. So all of a sudden, there's this new way to express Acadian pride and the sense of like who we are. And food is a cultural product, no matter, I mean, or a cultural artifact, whichever way you want to view it. And all of a sudden, for people who are like, oh, we can talk about this. We can be proud about this. And people are interested in it. That's been the thing. But the other thing of it is that some people have been like, well, why'd you do it like this? Because it is such a food of people's homes. And no matter what your ethnicity is, the food of your cultural heritage is always very indicative of your own family. And so some people are like, well, why did you not do this? Why did you do it this way? Like in the Frico, like the classic uh, Frico, I had some people who were like, what are you doing? Why do you have carrots in your Frico? And I was like, oh, come on. Like, my mother doesn't do it. But I was like, I need to give people some form of, like, introduction to this. And they even say, I was like, carrots are not habitual. It's okay. Like, you have to think of, like, what's the most accessible point, easiest point of access for people who have no context to this food to get into it. So I even had one person completely and utterly criticize me. They were like... He said it's going to be all his grandmother's recipes, but he's all bastardized them. I'm like, I haven't bastardized anything. I've basically made sense of it. <laughs> but it, no, it's been it's been super fun. Like, I mean, I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I work as a freelance journalist. Um, and when I wrote this book, I thought, okay, it'll do well in Atlantic Canada and maybe a few other things. But it gained national attention here in Canada. It was on the cover of like the life section of like the biggest newspaper in the country. Um, I've done interviews all over the place, and now it's getting inter- interest in the U.S., which is kind of amazing. And I mean, that was the point: is to get people talking about this. But it wasn't purely from an intellectual point of view or from an educational point of view. Acadians live all over the place. I mean, we're most of us are based here in Atlantic Canada or in parts of like Quebec and, and a little bit of Maine, but it's like, we are a diasporic people. We are a diaspora. We are living all over the place and we have very specific and individualistic kind of experiences of what it means to be Acadian. And to see that in the media, it resonated with so many people like, oh my God, we're here, we're being viewed, we're being talked about. It was kind of wonderful for people. And I'm, it was a, it's a little surreal. All of a sudden I've become this kind of like accidental uh, Acadian spokesperson. I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. I'm, I'm happy to do it, but it's like, that's not what I expected to happen. Is your mother still alive? Yeah, my mom is, my, both my parents are very happy. 
happy and healthy. Knock on wood, I was, I'm knocking on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Are they uh, so proud of you? The, yeah, they're very, they're just like, they can't get over it. Like just how many people have come up to them and just, um, people will come up to my mom and be like, I re- like even people have told me like they remember my grandmother, like people have told my, or told my mother Aww. that they remember her mother. Like one gentleman, we had a book launch, um, down home for my, for the book. It was in the month of May. And this gentleman came up and he said to me, I remember your, your grandmother's cooking. I remember sitting at your grandmother's table with your mother when she was a child and just eating these foods. And it was kind of amazing. And he's just, he had tears in his eyes. He's like, I haven't thought of these flavors of these things for years. So it was kind of amazing, but no, um, it's funny because my parents are relatively private people in the sense of like, they will talk to everybody, but they've never been people to like seek out a new form of, uh, notoriety or fame or anything else and people are stopping them in the street is like i read your son's book and like like oh my god this is like it's resonating in lots of places so it's been wonderful for them a recent entry on your blog called cookbook love described (laughs) your love of cookbooks and the first time you walked into kitchen arts and letters here in new york city (sighs) recount that moment for us um it was april of 2015 I was in New York for the James Beard Awards. Um, I was going to the, to the awards ceremony and friends of mine are like, you have to go to kitchen arts. And, uh, I read cookbooks like they're novels. I read them cover to cover. And I walked in and I met knock who's, uh, one of the major owners of the store and one of his other staff members. And he was talking to a woman. She was looking for a book on Chinese cookery and he mentioned um, Fuchsia Dunlop, who is one of my favorite cookery writers. She's, an, she's a uh, British woman who has made an entire career talking about Chinese cookery. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was talking about her books. And I just said to the woman, uh, I said, if I don't mind me interrupting, I said, you should really read her book, Shark's Fin and Szechuan Pepper, because chapter four is specifically about the appreciation and the understanding of texture in Chinese cuisine. And Nock looks at me, he's like, do you want a job here? And I just kind of like hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I seriously would. It's like if I lived in New York, I would apply for there in a heartbeat. And so Nock and I just started talking and uh, he gave me a bunch of really wonderful suggestions. I said, these are the kinds of things that I read. But it was just amazing to be in a store that is so dedicated to cookery in every single form from an intellectualization to the practicality, to the aesthetic. And the staff are, were just so knowledgeable and so accommodating and knew so much about what there was in the story. It was kind of amazing. And, uh, I left there with like having spent, I don't know, like $400, $500. <laughs> and I got to the airport and, uh, my luggage was overweight. The guy at the counter is like, That'll be a hundred dollars, please. I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> just money. That's all. <laughs> just money. Yeah. But um, I've kind of fallen in love with that store, and I uh, every time I go to New York, I made a point of going. And then when the book came out, um, one of the other owners, Matt, uh, said to me, he "said Do you want to do a? We could do a book launch here." And I was really amazed, and I said, "Yes, please." And so uh, in November this year, I went down to New York again, and we had a small little book launch, and a few friends of mine showed up, which was really lovely. And then um, the event was over, and uh, two things happened. One, 
I was just about to leave and Matt said, can you please sign um, some copies for us? And I said, sure. And I said, how many do you want me to sign? Because if you don't sell them, you can always send them back. And Matt says, oh no, I'm going to sell them all. Wow. So I was a little taken aback and uh, I was just really moved because this is a store that um, is pretty much like the platonic ideal of what my interest in food is. It's like I said, it is, there's an intellectualization, there's a practicality to it, but it's all about getting people to cook and to think about food. And I think that's really amazing. And after I'd send the copies, the night's over, I walk out and with my friend, a friend of mine and I just burst into tears <laughs> and he's like, Aww. what's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. I've just, I just had a book launch in New York. You made I, it. Yeah, it was really kind of amazing, it, and uh, I was really, really pleased. And uh, just in December of this year, uh, Kitchen Arts and Letters put out their list of the top ten cookbooks of the year, and there was my book. Yep. I <laughs> just kind of was like, all right, I don't need anything else anymore. I'm good. Like, to me, that was the be-all and end-all. So it was I'm, one of their favorites for 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm there on the list sitting next to like Wally Dufresne and it's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) David Tannis and all these people like, this is insane. So I've always, I remember my first time in New York, I came and I was at the Beard Awards and I'm sitting at this table and I'm looking around and like Dan Barber is the table next to mine. The Kitchen Sisters are two tables over. Um, (laughs) Dory Greenspan is up on stage and I'm like, where am I? And I just sat next to this woman and I said to her and I said, uh, I, I'm sorry, I just feel like a little bit of a country mouse and I don't know what to do. And she said, that's okay, I don't know, I, I understand that feeling completely. And she was there with her son and she was uh, from Colorado. She's like, mom, you have one of these. And she's like, yeah, but I still feel like a country mouse. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay to like have those kinds of moments. And especially, like I said, I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I love where I live. But it's one thing to see what you're doing as a professional and then finally get the recognition and just have it happen in that kind of way has been incredibly, uh, it's been liberating, it's been, uh, but it's been inspiring. But more than anything, it's shown me that I can, I can do what I need to do. I can do this. And it's like, there's this affirmation that has come about that I'm like, no, I'm doing the right thing. And it's good. And you also love Bonnie Slotnick, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> do you yeah. want to hear the craziest story? Please. So we moved to 10th street here in the West village. And I said, I'm so excited. I'm going to be a couple blocks away from Bonnie Slotnick. That same month we moved in, she moved out over to the East village. I was so Uh, upset. uh, Anyway, she's still (laughs) close. Yeah. I mean, and she's just the sweetest woman ever. Um, I, um, two people I know who live here in Halifax are, uh, originally from New York and, uh, they're living here now, but they had asked her for a book 10 years ago. And about two years ago, they got a phone call. Are you still looking for this book? And they were like, yes. She remembered them eight years later, even though they weren't living in, living in New York anymore. I mean. That's incredible. Bonnie is a, is a walking repository of culinary information that around books that is like unparalleled. It's kind of insane and amazing. And every time I have friends who go to New York, I'm like, two places to go, Kitchen Arts and Letters and Bonnie Slotnick. And just sit in Bonnie's and just look for the most random things. I mean, I found a first edition of a cookbook from Nova Scotia in there. I found all kinds of wonderful goodies in there and I can ask her about things. And, um, I actually met a real hero of mine in Bonnie Slonick. Um, I met Grace Young, who's a, an award-winning author who wrote a really yeah. wonderful book called the breath of the walk. Mm-hmm. And, 
I was in there one day. I was on a trip to New York, and I left. And about five minutes later, she walked in. So I had missed her. And uh, I'd been talking to Bonnie about how much I loved her books. And she said, well, she's in here often. And so I got in contact with Grace, and I actually got to meet Grace at Bonnie Slotnick. And uh, I said, all right, we're going to go to the Chinese cookery section, and you're going to tell me what are the books that I need to own. So it was a pretty amazing experience. Oh, that's surreal. With Grace. Yeah, it was wonderful. And But that's the, the wonderful thing about we live in a celebrity culture and yes, food people have deservedly um, garnered attention for the work that they do, whether it be working in kitchens or writing about food, but there's still a highly democratic, it's still a very democratic uh, way of living and, and working, meaning that you can often contact these people and they often will help you because, and I think that's a really important thing and a really thing, important thing to emulate in your own behavior is like, if there's, all this information out there, why would you keep it to yourself? Share the knowledge. That's the whole point of cookery is to share that knowledge in as many ways as possible. And that's been amazing. And, and this kind of work that I've been doing around uh, working in food journalism is that on the, on the like, if grossly, like the, the majority of people will be like, no, I want you to, to have this information and I want to help one another. It's like, let's just get people cooking. Let's get people thinking about food. Let's get people, let's give people agency to do what they need to do. And that's really wonderful. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Yeah, um, you can find my work at simontebow.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Simon A. Tebow, and Tebow is spelled T-H-I-B as in Bobby, A-U-L-T. Um, and you can actually recently find me, uh, if you go to Perennial Plate's website, the Perennial Plate recently did a video where I explained to them what Acadian food is and took them down to uh, where I grew up and had some Acadian food with the gang from Perennial. And it's a really wonderful video. You've said cookbooks have allowed you to travel the world, and now you've allowed us to travel through your terrific new cookbook. Thanks, Simon, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book, Twitter is I am Susie Chase, and download your kitchen mixtapes, music to cook by, on Spotify at Cookery by the Book, and as always, subscribe in Apple Podcasts.